Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of Odeal & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have a special edition of 321 Go. Cosmo and I are joined by former Boston Herald journalist Tom Farmer as we collectively reflect on the 18th anniversary of 9-11. And in our interview this week, Ann Murphy talks to Kristen Smedley, activist and author, about her work with National Braille Press. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom reminisces about the longtime Boston political institution, Doyle's. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321GO on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321GO, it's a special conversation about 9-11 18 years later. We'll be joined by Kyan Isaacson, the official voice of OA On Air, and veteran journalist, author, and communication specialist Tom Farmer and will recall one of the most chaotic and terrible days in American history from the perspective of journalists who covered it as it was happening. All right, up on 321 Go Now, we're joined by Tom Farmer, former journalist from the Boston Herald, co-author of A Murder in Wellesley, and also a communication specialist and a former colleague of mine, Tom Farmer. Great to have you here with myself and Kai and Isaacson on 321 Go. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks Welcome. for inviting me. Excellent. So, um, Tom, I wanted to have you in specifically because um, of the now 18th anniversary of 9-11, September 11th, 2001, the terrorist attacks on America, uh, New York, Washington. Um, and, and for a couple of reasons. Number one, because... I think any journalist in America, not just in New York or Boston, but in America at that time, who was, who was covering the news, was impacted by that and probably has an interesting um, uh, and, and unique story. I think we share some of that because we're working together. Certainly, it has a great impact on anyone in America at the time. And, and, I, and I'm really interested in hearing about, from Cayenne, sort of her perspective as just someone who was in college at the time. But... Let's just set the scene for a moment. 18 years ago, uh, and as, we, as we've paused this week to remember what I always call the darkest day in American history, certainly since I've been alive and I'm 52 years old, um, go back to that day and, and how things evolved very quickly for, for the whole country watching this and, and, and seeing what's going on, but also as reporters, as journalists, and, and, and where we were, where you were, and what happened during uh, probably the most chaotic day in, in both of our careers, certainly. Well, I was driving into the paper. I was on the lower deck and had WBZ radio on, and I heard that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And, you know, at first I thought, well, that's kind of odd because it wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was a picture-perfect day. It was a perfect day for flying. You know, you're thinking it's a small plane. Maybe somebody did it deliberately. So, you know, I kind of called it in and, and kind of put the foot on the gas a little bit more to get in there. And then when I heard that the second plane had hit, obviously, this is like an attack. So 
flew into the paper, literally ran up the stairs. We put out um, an extra edition yep. that didn't have a lot of real factual information in it, the more speculation than anything else. Um, and then That would change by the end of the night, I'll tell you that, right. but yes. And then it was off to the races. It yes. was all hands on deck. Um, didn't matter to what your beat was, what you covered, you know, at the Herald end. We had a really talented staff. Um, people had all kinds of sources throughout all kinds of law enforcement, um, government, um, business. Yep. Um, so everybody just pulled together for that common cause to cover this story. And um, yeah, it was it was a remarkable day. I I, I, I want to hear about where you were, Cayenne, and I'll share my little story. But it, you know, at the time, you know. I'm a business columnist and a business journalist at the Herald. I had covered crime and stuff in, in, in Springfield, but my role at the Herald then as a business columnist, you had sports reporters, you had, you had fashion and lifestyle reporters in, in uh, New York City who became our entire sort of information lifeline for days, weeks sometimes, in, in some cases. So everyone is like pulling together all their resources and, and sources to figure out how to how to go after this story and it, it, it was quite a day and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, Cayenne, tell us about where 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 you were at that time. I was in college. Uh oh, <laughs> we're old. I was in um, some math class. I don't remember what kind of math it was. Uh, they all run together, but I remember um, it was everyone kind of thought uh, that's odd and weird and back to normal business. But what's interesting too is that. Same thing. Once it was the set, you know, everyone it changed. Once that second plane went in for everybody, classes were dismissed. Everyone was told to, you know, go home if you wanted to go, whatever it was. Um, but it's interesting listening to you guys talk about it and how you say, you know, every journalist all over the country, everything changed, right? But it started in Boston. I, I mean, we sort of obviously it became a New York and a Washington D.C. story, more focused on New York in, in the days and the weeks after, but. For that day, it really, it all started here. So it makes sense that I'm sure your newsroom was at a different level of frenzy than any other city's newsroom at that time. Um, and, you know, looking, looking back, I think the way journalists, I think people's relationships with journalists changed after. You found people that you kind of latched onto, particularly TV, that made you comfortable or columnists and reporters that you kind of got to know or you liked the way they were covering the issue like for me Peter Jennings was like my guy for all 9-11 coverage um, on television but for like my relationship with media changed after 9-11 it like it, I became so much more attuned to the idea of what it is and I had yet to declare like journalism as a major I ended up doing that but um it's yeah it's fascinating to hear people's stories and then there's people that are going into college this year that weren't alive there's a whole generation yeah. of people it's it's, it's amazing. that are now young march adults of, that weren't time. yeah um it, well you know uh, like you I, I was sort of somewhere else i actually was on was on assignment i was interviewing someone early it was pretty early in the in the day i was i was at the norwood airport a little, little uh, general aviation airport uh, as it would happen and i'm interviewing a woman who, who we had agreed to meet there and she's talking to me about a story uh, that she thinks could be good for me to write uh, for the Herald, um, and my phone rings. And my 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 Nextel mobile phone, circa <laughs> night two thousand one. That, that and chirping noise. And it's my noise. wife Carrie, and yep. she's like, "Cause 
an airplane just hit the World Trade Center. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah. She goes, I guess it's like some kind of a twin. It's like one of those, you know, small planes. I don't know, but it, I just, it's pretty crazy. And she was very attuned to me being in the news business since that's all I've ever, I'd ever done to that point in my life. And about a half an hour later, the, my, and I'm like, okay, well, thanks. And I'm, I, I'm distracted. And I go back to talking to this person uh, in the cafe at this little airport. And, and the phone rings. Um, and this was supposed to be some big column I was going to do with this person. The phone rings, and it's my wife again. And she goes, cause, another plane hit the other World Trade Center. And I said, oh, my God. I hang up. I just go. I literally said, lady, I got to go. And that point, I never spoke to her ever again. That was going to be my question. Did I you ever I mean, follow? And, 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 and you know what? I guarantee she understood, right? Absolutely. I guarantee she understood. Everything changed. And I got it in my little my Toyota pickup. I'm not really a fast driver, and I gunned it as fast as I could to the Herald because I knew that's where I had to be. Yep. So in the Herald newsroom, like any other, every other newsroom in America, but certainly in Boston and in and, and, and New York at the time, it's complete pandemonium and people and... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I've got a couple sources that were helpful early on to give us some good information at like 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night. And then I'm working on the story w w across departments with Tom Farmer, uh, one of the great crime reporters of our time. Ed Hayward, one of the greatest writers in the Herald in the history of uh, my time at the Herald. Other great reporters, Maggie Mulvihill, one of the best investigative journalists yeah. I've ever encountered. Um, All together, just trying to put together the right story and, and and something came together that was that was sort of solved the very first part of the mystery the next morning right Tom sure we um, we had a source uh, high-level law enforcement source and it was late in the day I mean things just kept happening you know you know the, the, the New York attack then there's the Pentagon attack then the plane crashes in Pennsylvania then the towers collapsed so throughout the day it was just you know development after development trying to keep on top of it. Late in the day, you know, we learned um, from a high-level law enforcement source that, you know, there were teams of hijackers. They had, some of them had come from uh, Portland, Maine. Um, they had parked a car at Logan Airport and had a confrontation with somebody over a parking space, and then they found out all these flight manuals and, you know, and written in Arabic. I'd never heard that oh, they, they, they had flight so manuals written in Arabic. They had, and um, they attacked the the plane with like box cutters and that you know that some stewardesses but that someone had, had like an altercation with them right and, I mean who yeah that's talk and, about, yeah, yeah. And later on when it when he realized what poor, had happened obviously poor, he called poor person too of yeah yeah so it was um so we you know this stuff came together late and it got in the last edition and um and then it went crazy because when all the other news outlets around the country saw what we had. They started trying to reach out to us, and they wanted to interview us, and they wanted to know how we got the information. So I always say it was my best day and worst day in journalism. I mean, I'm very proud of the work that we did, but it was such a horrible, horrific day. Um, it was hard to, like, want to pat yourself on the back because you would really wish that it never happened. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a, the, the darkest day in, 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 that I see in American history, but it was, you know what, as a news organization... Uh, and, and that's the entire Herald and every part of it, um, and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe and every other paper that covered this thing in all these different ways, you're, that's that's the moment, right? That's the moment where well, you I know like, when you our know. papers landed at the Globe early the next morning, there were a lot of unhappy Yeah, there was, real com there was real competition. There was real then. competition, <laughs> and we, we beat the pants off on that story, and... Um, 
and it, it was the Herald was primed then for that moment. Um, yeah. It, 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 it was a and small the, staff. The Everybody editor, was the leadership, the newsroom leadership, the, really understood how to just absolutely blanket how to go a big a story. breaking story. Right, you know? and um, and we were just like a well, we were like a special forces unit of yeah. journalism. We were really equipped to be small but powerful. Yeah, and everything came together that day. Yeah. Um, so and I, I had so I had my little role in that story, and I was proud to be part of that 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 story a little bit, but. Then I'm I'm like okay I'm I'm a business columnist, I just wrote my first column for this this new business column feature, and now anything I had planned because I had weeks of ideas was meaningless worthless for thirty days, so there's kind of there's a kind of trial by, uh, you know, trial by fire into the deep end of the pool whatever you want to call it. I had to figure out how to write a sort of compelling, interesting column to my uh, business audience for three three times a week Amidst. for the next for the next month, yeah. and and um, tie it in. And, and there were certainly angles. This you know this is a major financial. Uh, there's all kinds of financial impacts and personal things. And but it was uh, it was it was an, um, a remarkable and uh, astonishing time to be a journalist uh, in in Boston and, and anywhere in America. I think because it, 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 the story was was about every American. Um, I was a so I was a freshman in college when it happened. But fast forward by my senior year, in like my I think it was a journalism and ethics course, we studied 9/11. Like we studied how journalists responded to 9/11, how yeah. um, the line of how do you you know be a an unbiased journalist but also an American citizen who's sad and scared and and um, and that sort of four years of, of college it went from it happened to we studied it and how did you know how did people move forward and get it done because every journalist is, is still just a citizen who's scared and frightened and knows somebody or um, and is that okay was was I think the we had to write a paper on like was it okay if that if that wall dropped that day and the opinions on it were incredibly varied um, well, we know, had a photographer who was there who was watching people jump out of the buildings it's, and I could mean, not bring himself to take the picture. I don't blame him. Um, and he was obviously very shaken by the whole thing to see, yeah. to yeah. see I mean, that. I mean, there, there's enough it footage of, of some of the terrible things happening, yeah. and, and, and uh, the audio is horrifying because you realize that's what that sound is of people, of, of you know, the deceased the hitting, hitting the ground. You could hear the thumps. The, uh, just the footage is is absolutely sh shocking and, t and and will change your life. Imagine actually being an eyewitness on scene to this terrible thing. It's, you know, I, I, there was a time when I kind of processed a lot of that stuff as j just out of, out, of, out of natural curiosity, being a journalist. I, I can't really watch that stuff anymore. Oh, no, no, uh, no. Without really feeling horrible. I mean, I covered a lot of horrible crime. I worked at the Lynn paper for 10 years. I worked in overnight police beat, you know, car accidents, murders, fires. So I'd seen a lot of stuff like that. And then we had had the Worcester firefighters that were killed, six firefighters, which was a horrific story in itself. Um, and now you've got hundreds of law enforcement people and thousands of citizens dead. I remember when the towers came down, there was a AP put out some bullet and they said, there's 243 New York firefighters missing. And I'm like, missing? They're dead. Yeah. I mean, nobody survived that. I mean, yeah. if they were in that building, they're dead. So it just, all the stuff kept hitting you in the face and you had to keep trying to do your job and not get overwhelmed by yeah. the horror of it all. 
Yeah. yeah. It became, and, 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 and for weeks afterwards, I mean, it, predictably, uh, the Boston element of the Boston localized part of that story was what happened here? How did it happen? How could this happen? Who's responsible? How could this happen? At the, which, which makes sense. That's part of the story. Um, but it, it really became um, a story about New York and, 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 and some, of the, some of the greatest journalism you'd ever experience happened mm -hmm. as a result of this terrible thing. You know, the, the, uh, the, I've always thought that the commitment of the New York Times to recognize every single person as comprehensively as they can with those vignettes, which I believe won the, earned the Pulitzer Prize, was 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 a great uh, a great achievement and a great commitment in journalism. Well, look, what final thoughts on this? By the way, let's talk about uh, briefly about a murder in Wellesley. Your co-author, I remember you covering that case. Well, that was Dr. around Dirk, the same right? time. Um, actually, um, his trial began um, after 9/11. No, I'm sorry, it was before 9/11. It was in uh, May of 2001. So, yeah. uh, Dr. Dirk Reiner was a Wellesley allergist. He uh, killed his wife out on a Sunday morning stroll, um, and it became, uh, as facts unraveled, he had a secret double life. He was running around with hookers and swingers and all kinds of crazy stuff, and um, covered that, covered the trial, and um, worked with the uh, lead state police investigator, Marty Foley. We, we put a book together. It came out in 2012. Yeah. Um, and it seems to have been well received. We've we've got some good reviews on Amazon. So if you're interested in a true good. crime story, available uh, at Amazon, a murder in Wellesley. A murder in Wellesley. Awesome. Anyway, I, I I'm, I'm glad that uh, uh, I'm glad that the, that the country observes that day in the way it should, and I think we will at least for my lifetime, as long as people. Uh, it's a constant reminder because. Uh, it was, a, it, was, it was quite a quite a terrible, terrible experience. All right. Tom Farmer, thanks so much. This is great. Thanks for coming on, Anytime, joining us. Anytime, Cosmo. It was always a blast to Love work to have you. Love to have you back. All right. Thanks, Cayenne. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 108, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room in our building in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masseri. Up next, an interview with Kristen Smedley. I'm Ann Murphy, Senior Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. Our guest today is Kristen Smedley, who joins us to talk about her advocacy for the blind and visually impaired and their families. Kristen, welcome to OA On Air. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. I'm so <laughs> excited to be here. Well, we know that your life has been an amazing journey, especially here today, <laughs> but, but of course, through your life, with your children, two of whom are blind. How did you evolve in becoming a worldwide advocate for the blind? You know what? I always say um, I'm actually in town to speak tomorrow, and I start off by saying my, my name is Kristen, and I'm a Virgo. I'm a very big planner. I'm a very big planner, like to set goals and achieve them, and everything that has happened to me except for being a mom is by accident. Now, all of this has been accidental. I became this accidental advocate for the blind because I was, and I, I sometimes I'm embarrassed to say it, but 19 years ago when I heard your son is blind, I was literally slammed to the floor. I mean, a little, a little diagnosis room at, at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and I was on the floor because, you know, 
you know, if you've carried a child, as your belly's growing, your dreams and your hopes for them just grow and grow. And in that nine months, it's like by the time they're born, you have this picture. And when that at four months old is just extinguished, I, I collapsed. I collapsed. But then I learned a lot about how to raise a blind child. And I actually learned from my kids was the first pivotal moment. And, and now I just feel like, who would I be if I didn't share all this and help change um, some of the not so great stuff happening for the blind community? So you had two children who were blind and the second son was born how, uh, how soon after your first son? So three and a half years. Three and and, half and that, that gap there is, it was, it was a, um, a healing time for the diagnosis and then it was an interesting journey because most families with this disease, they either only have one child, the first child's affected, or when they get to you know that child that is affected, there's no more after because it's so devastating. I'm from a big family. You know, my former husband was from a big family, and it for me would have been harder to raise an only child than a child with this quote disability. What is that specific diagnosis? That it's it's Labor's congenital amaurosis (LCA) and it's the CRB1 gene mutation. Look at me sound like a scientist. You do sound <laughs> like it. I'm so not. <laughs> well, uh, can you tell our listeners how you want to change the perception of the sighted world about people who are blind? So this was the big thing for me, and and if you can open your mind for just a minute, because I know that blindness is what the second most feared thing on the planet next to death, right? I, I get that and I was in that boat and that's why I crashed to the floor. But what I learned watching my kids and watching the blind community and getting to know these folks and getting all the education I could, you know, blindness isn't the problem. It's our perception of blindness that's the problem. And it's when things are not accessible that's the problem. Blindness for my boys has never been their problem. It's how people perceive them. How um, if they can't get stuff in Braille and they can't read like their, like their classmates, they can't access the information, there's the problem. And that stems from perceptions of, you know, when Michael was in kindergarten after he sailed through pre-K, the kindergarten IEP team, individualized education plan team said to me, um, he would only find his cubby 70% of the time. He was going to do this 70%. 70% was their 100%. And I was like, wait a minute. Is that what you're expecting of the sighted kids? And their thing was, Kristen, he's blind. So 70% is huge for him. And that perception was then he wasn't getting all of the, the Braille instruction that he really needed to be at his intellectual level to, to be alongside his peers. Um, he wasn't getting mobility instruction often enough to be independently navigating the world. Those kinds of things. So, so my goal now is to, no pun intended, open people's eyes to the fact that it is not, and it's not just blindness. In the world of disability, it is not the wheelchair. It's not the cochlear implant. It's not blindness that is the barrier. It's, it's your perception of it that's the barrier. Well, I know that um, we represent the National Braille Press in, in, in located right here in Boston, and we know that Braille is very important for people who are blind and visually impaired, and especially in children, so that they learn early. Uh, do you see Braille as a key to your son's education and independence? Um, I would say it was number two in, in 
their success and number one being their their own uh, personalities of of resilience and and um, extraordinary effort and love of being in the world every day but braille you know and i gotta be honest in the very beginning i was running in the opposite direction of braille because braille and the white cane to me were constant reminders that my kids were different and this was a struggle when my perception hadn't changed yet and i didn't want the neon sign you know, and I know a lot of people that are losing their vision now as adults, that cane is very hard for them to get over and braille they think is too hard and it just means they're blind. And I was there, I was in that boat. But then when you see that braille levels the playing field for my sons to sit in one of the top schools in Pennsylvania in all advanced placement classes, it's braille that gave them that opportunity because if they didn't have it, and I know that a lot of people say there's audio everything and I, I've been in email conversations with people that grew up listening to audio and not reading Braille, and you can tell a difference. You just can tell a difference. And a lot of the stuff isn't available in audio that we can instantly put on a Braille printer for my sons to access. I mean, I think that uh, I think the tagline is that Braille is literacy. Braille equals literacy. And yeah. you do need literacy. You need to be proficient literally in literacy to be successful in life no matter what you choose to do. Yeah, and you know what? I have this beautiful picture of, you know, I, I, um, I have this, this slide that I use that it's Michael in kindergarten when they expected almost nothing out of him, and then Michael at graduation, and both pictures are taken in the morning outside our mailbox, one when he was real little, and then one at graduation. And if you've seen the high school graduates now, they wear these, like, braided cords around their neck for all the achievements. Michael was in every honor society that you could possibly have been in in his school. He had a medal for, he was elected to the student council executive board all four years because the kids just loved him and he was such a talented leader. Every accolade you could possibly have around his neck. And then there's a picture of him. He was, you know, when I was pregnant with him, I imagined the valedictorian. And he didn't know about that dream. And he became the valedictorian. And his speech, the picture that somebody took for me he's using his electronic brailler right, yeah. to read the speech that he always says he gets to cheat because nobody knows he's reading the speech, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> but behind him in the picture is the school board on one side and all the administrators and the president of the school on the other side. And they're looking at him in awe, so proud. Beautiful. It's amazing. It's amazing, and it's truly a testament to your advocacy and in your children's like fortitude, determination, and intelligence, and working together with them. And I think that that's the that's the whole thing. You got to be a team, and you know it's a team effort. And I know that there's something you did very special. Uh, you're an author now, and uh, <laughs> tell us about your book, Thriving Blind. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that I say is, you know, in this changing perceptions to set your extraordinary expectations of your life and your journey, it all. Um, is a part of your outcomes. Like if they're not extraordinary, if you're not expecting anything out of the ordinary and they're not big enough, you're not gonna have very good outcomes. But a big piece of that is finding role models. I think I'm just that kind of person that I need that whole like ignition thing of if they could do it, I could do it. So we've been very blessed that ever since um, we moved back to our hometown of Philadelphia years ago, there's um, a group, the Associated Services of the Blind of Philadelphia, puts on this huge Louis Braille Awards every year where they bring in somebody that has just blew perception out of the water for blindness, and it's a successful blind adult. I was able to take my boys every year to that big event, and they met them. 
So when I saw my son Michael at six years old meet Eric Weinmayer, the blind mountain climber, at that moment I watched him he never was going to have a limit in his brain of what his life could be because he met someone just like him that just came off Everest at that point and then went on to do all the other mountains. So then I meet these people every year and I watch Michael and Mitchell's look of their life. Just they never saw any barriers because of these folks. So who would I be to sit on that? You know, I know that I know all these moms that can't get off the couch because they don't know all the possibility that's there. And you know, social media, you can do a lot and you can do a lot, but when you put them all in one package and hand it to a mom and say, I know you think that this is awful right now, but look at what's still possible. And I made sure that, because there is a term in the blind community where they say, Kristen's medley's super blind. You know, she's out there like overachieving is her thing. And I'm like, oh, well, talk to my parents when I was little, you know, and <laughs> I wasn't exactly overachieving and neither is my son Mitchell. But, um, but my thing, so the collection of people in there is everything from a stay-at-home parent to crazy Eric Weimayer that's on all these mountains that I don't even want my kids on his email list anymore because right. <laughs> I don't want them to know all the crazy stuff he does. But it's the whole gamut, just like the sighted world. You know, and I think that as parents, we have to look at our kids individually to say, yes, our oldest child may be climbing all the mountains. And maybe your middle child was not meant to do all of those big things, but big things in his own right, you know? And we have to look at them all individual and give them all opportunities to meet people that run the gamut of their interests. So that was really the core of Thriving Blind, to bring it to, it's the resource I wish somebody handed me 19 years ago. Right. And yeah. it started as a pamphlet. I wanted doctors to hand a mom the pamphlet. <laughs> it became this book that I was saying earlier, of English teachers all over are passing out and needing oxygen. That Kristen Smedley put a book together. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful achievement. And uh, you know, I think that if anyone gets to know you and uh, look at your website, which I did, and there was a story on your website, I just was blown away by the story about your visiting Martha's Vineyard and watching that sunset at Menemsha Beach, which I've done many times, and a lot of our listeners are very familiar with that beach. And the way you described the sunset to your son was beautiful. Can you share that with us, that his view of the sunset was actually a sad one, but you had another way to look at it? Yeah, you know, I, I love sunsets I love the colors and I say in that blog that I didn't initially because in the rare disease world a lot of and, and anyone that has gone through a tough diagnosis will know so many times you're not given the resources so to me a sunset was like I was being set out on the water when I got that diagnosis and the sun was going down darkness was coming and I didn't know what to do so there was a period of time I looked at it that way but then when my life turned around and perceptions opened and all that I mean I look at it now as the most amazing colorful natural and maybe because my my finances got a little crazy for a little while there and I had to do everything frugally but it is like this free event that you can see the most amazing spectacular thing happen in nature right and in where we're from I mean there I can't tell you how many times on Facebook people will post pictures did you see this the sunset tonight the way the sky lights up and I look at it that way and that's why we went to that beach that day and Mitchell was looking at it like, no. And we were also at the very beginning of divorce. And it, it has been an absolutely horrific time for me and my kids. Um, and it was just the beginning of it. And he just was like, this is an end, Mom. Why would you celebrate? The sun setting is an end. And I'm like, no, look at all the colors. Look at the way. And then just at the moment I was about to talk about it, the sun came down and, and tipped the water. 
and the and the beam of light came right at us and Mitchell has such minimal vision but he was able to see it and I'm like to me that's hope's path that is hope that is God saying to you hang in there I am still here it looks like crap all around you but look at the brilliance that's in there and if you can find the brilliance in the bad that is where you find your power that is when everything turns around and then he said to me but then it goes totally dark like you had all of that and it still goes dark and I'm like but look everybody's packing up it's time to go home we have a big job tomorrow and and we're gonna go home and get rest and take on the day tomorrow and it's a cycle and it comes back and some days some days we don't need to work as hard right but some days we do and we need that arsenal of, of light and, and a change in perception. My, my oldest son is going through a huge struggle right now, and we just had the exact same conversations. It doesn't take the problem away, but when you just shift their mindset ever such a fraction to be able to get through that day and to tackle the next thing that you have to do, it makes all the difference in the world. Well, yeah. uh- Kristen, you've done a TED Talk, you've written a book, you have blogs, you have podcasts, you have... What's next for you? (laughs) We are working to push this book out as far and wide as it can go because it it actually now, it's transcending the blind community. So I'm pushing that far and wide and, and working to get Braille more affordable and accessible um, to start tackling all of those um, horrific... Um, percentages of, of unemployment and, and achievement and all that so that everybody can get up to the level where my kids are. Because honestly, if, if me and my kids can do this, everybody can do this. We are not the super smarts. We are not. We had zero resources when we started. I don't have a last name that is going to open a bazillion doors. So if we're able to do it, everybody can do it. And I want to help people get the tools that they need to do it. You have a website, kristensmedley.com. And for more information about Braille and Braille publishing and accessibility, you can also check out nvp.org. Thank you so much, Kristen, for coming. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I I really appreciate the work that you guys do and, and put such positive stuff in the world. So I appreciate being here. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Tom. Diane, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I ran into somebody today at a luncheon that I was speaking at who told me that they catch this every week. Really? And I look forward to it, yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah. always nice to hear from yep. our fans. It was, it was, <laughs> they were talking about you and not me, though. I find that hard to believe. Uh, sure. What are we talking about today? Doyle's is closing. Doyle's. A Boston institution in its own right. If you all haven't been there. Uh, I have I have not been there. You've not? I have not. It, it's worth a ride over to Jamaica Plain to see it. I mean, it's really an old-style Irish pub. Mm-hmm. Those uh, are the best ones. Uh, they're the best ones. Uh, it's, Give me uh, a hole in the wall any day. Well, it's not exactly a, it's <laughs> not not a hole in the wall. But it's got that But it could use some scrubbing. Charm. It could okay. use some scrubbing. Uh, yeah, it has all of the charm of any Irish pub I've ever been in, um, and, and it's fun. The first time I was there, it was... As, a, uh, as an advance man for Teddy Kennedy back in 1968, we took him through because he wanted a campaign there. And um, Because for anyone who doesn't know, it is a political hot spot. Oh, it's a hot spot. I assume people been. knew. It's, it's, been on the, it's been on the papers and on social uh, 
PR from for the last couple of days because they sold the liquor license to Davios to go to the waterfront. Mm-hmm. However, the history Which is such a story of Boston in and of itself oh, right God. now, but that's besides the point. The history the history of, of uh, Doyle's is, is simply great. I don't think a, a mayor over the last century hasn't been there. I think any congressman who represented that area, from John McCormick right through to Steve Lynch. Presidents have been there? Every every single candidate for president, not just presidents, candidates for presidents, kind of hop through there. So they have a wonderful kind of memorabilia on the walls, you know, which come off the walls and tell you the history, from James Michael Curley to Honey Fitz to Jack Kennedy to Teddy Kennedy to anybody that's run for statewide office or ran for Congress of a local office out in that area of Boston. It's just been great. And that includes you. You campaigned there. I campaigned there as, a, as a candidate there. for lieutenant governor and for governor, and uh, it was it was it was terrific. I remember um, I remember back in 1974 when I ran for lieutenant governor. It was uh, it was a meeting place for my for my folks because my headquarters in Boston was right on the corner. And so invariably, <laughs> invariably, everybody would wind up in the headquarters until around, oh, I don't know, 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And then they'd find their way. Spill over. To spill over to Doyle's. That's right. So it's got a great history. A lot of fond and wonderful memories. And uh, I hope people have an opportunity over the next month or two while it's still open to meander. I will try and get over there before it closes. Well, we'll talk about it again. Okay. Well, Thank thanks, you. Tom. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. In honor of 9-11 this week, our team here at O'Neill & Associates thanks all first responders then and today for their heroic efforts and remembers all the lives lost on September 11, 2001. We pray for them, their families, and for our continued healing as a nation. May we all never forget. Talk to you next week.